Good morning, it's Garland Nixon here with Jody Brar. Jody is the Vice President for the Communist Party of Britain, and she is the spokesman for the World Anti-Imperialist Platform. Let's talk. Good morning, one and all. Garland Nixon here. It's a beautiful Tuesday morning, and we are talking with Jody Brar. If you follow this channel, I've spoken with her brother, uh, well, on moats many times, and uh, interviewed him on the radio. And her her father, uh, the fantastic and brilliant man, an author, businessman, and now Jody Brar, who is a superstar in her own right. And I am not worthy to be in your presence today, Jody. How are you? Oh, very well, thank you. Don't pick me up too much because people will be disappointed. Well, I am a, I am a big fan. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan, Jody. Um, at any rate, lots for to talk about, um, and something that you've been talking about lately. You know, uh, with your with your organization, the Anti Imperialist Platform. And so, I want to throw some questions at you, get some thoughts. A big one that I I would like to um, get your take on is the Nord Stream attack. Um, the, you know, what that says to you about the decay of imperialism, the, 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 the decay of uh, colonialism. Normally you have, you know, the colonialist countries that go out to the global South or wherever they use coercion, they use violence to get what they want. There seems to be a, a high level of desperation when this kind of action is turned inward to their own, um, you know, colonial <laughs> uh, um, subjects. Uh, your thoughts on the um, the importance of the uh, and significance, I guess is a better word, of the um, the the Nord Stream attack um, for those of us who are pushing back against imperialism and colonialism. Well, I see that you prioritize this message, Garland, because you, you're regularly wearing that cap when I see your videos. Um, yes, it's really interesting, isn't it, to see how um, allies will turn on one another uh, in a situation of desperation. So the aim of sabotaging Nord Stream was a long-term aim. The Americans were always unhappy always with this rapprochement and this relationship between Germany and Russia. Um, I think it started when it was still the Soviet Union, in fact, when they built the first Nord Stream, right? That was in the 80s. And it was seen in those days, the Europeans saw it as part of their soft power play because the Soviet Union ideologically and economically was already in a process of decay and deterioration. And they were trying to help accelerate that with their friendly detent policy. It's also what they tried to do with China, right? That they would undermine the socialism of the Soviet Union by gradually turning these people into their friends and into uh, a new bourgeois class and, and undermining the planned economy uh, there, which was already in process in the Soviet Union, as I said. So in the Soviet Union, they were knocking at an open door. The Margaret Thatcher, I seem to recall, uh, presented it as a great, um, 
a great step forward in their plan to de-Sovietize Russia or their hopes of de-Sovietizing Russia. Um, and so the Nord Stream 1 set up this relationship between Europe and Russia, with which um, the USA was always profoundly uncomfortable. I mean, they have that phrase, don't they, that I can't remember who said it at the time, that NATO and the EU were being set up essentially as a framework for controlling, um, uh, whilst revitalizing European imperialism, controlling it, keeping it under manners, as it were, in the European, in the, in the US's kind of sphere of influence. And what did they say? It was all about keeping the, the Germans down, the Russian, the Americans in and the Russians out, right? And that's always been their main concern, because, of course, if you create a Eurasian power by uniting the, the, the resources of Germany and Russia, you have a powerhouse that can compete directly with the USA. That's something they did not want to see. So they were always nervous about this relationship. And of course, it became this flow, a guaranteed steady flow at a cheap rate, uh, essentially subsidized the ability of European industry to keep going and to keep competing on a world market, which is a difficult thing to do for Western countries, to have home-based industry that competes on a world market. That's why most imperialists um, powers, they do their manufacturing abroad, right? Not in, not at home, because the workforce, the land, the taxes, everything is cheaper. They get bigger profits that way. Doing it at home and paying home wages is expensive. But Russian gas was subsidizing their ability to keep doing that. Um, it was also creating the possibility of European independence. And there was a moment, I think maybe we talked about this Last time I spoke with you, I, I may be mistaking that, but um, there was a moment after the collapse of the Soviet Union, as the European Union started to flex its muscles, when there was a possibility for the European bloc to cement into a proper world power independent of the USA. That was something, again, the USA was very nervous about. Uh, I think we talked last time about how the British role really was to scotch that possibility, which was really relied on a European army. We've heard the talk over the decades that go up and down, up and down about the need for a European army. And what that really means is the, that there's a section of the ruling classes in, the, in Europe who are conscious that while they rely on American firepower, they can't have economic independence. They can't be a properly rival, sovereign, independent, imperialist power on their own. They're always going to be junior partners to the USA and in hock to them in some way. And now we're seeing the consequences of that, right? Um, because having failed to, with their kind of shock and awe sanctions regime, to bring down Russia in the way that they thought they would, the NATO imperialists uh, and the USA in particular um, are panicking and trying to work out how to make sure that everybody stays committed to this war, although now it's painful. They thought the pain would be short term. The pain's turning out to be long term. And of course, it's worse in Europe, much worse in Europe. Now, they may have all kinds of place people from, you know, in places as the Chancellor of Germany or the, you know, uh, President of the EU who, who make all these stupid statements and are totally on board with the US project. But 
huge numbers of or many members of the ruling class in France, in Italy, in Germany are not happy with the price they're paying for a war that they're not convinced anymore is, is going to be worth on the cost benefit analysis. You know, are they going to survive? Are their businesses going to survive how long this might take? And can it even be one? Or are they going to get all blowback and no benefit? So there's this, you know, the longer that you don't get success, the more the division comes. And there was clearly um, a strong element within Germany that was saying, look, we need to talk, we need to get, we need to, we need to hurry up and end this conflict. We need this gas, otherwise our economy is going to explode. And a certain section of the ruling elite in America saw the danger inherent in this uh, trend in Germany that they might not be able to, con they might have control of the chancellor, but the chancellor can be removed by the German people. And then what? You know, if the chancellor's removed in favor of somebody who's not under the control of the USA, what then? So really, the way I see it, this move was a move of desperation to stop the German people from thinking there was a way out of this war, that there was a way back to the status quo ante, that there was a way back to rapprochement with Russia and, um, on, and a way to keep the gas and oil flowing. And essentially, they took this, although, um, you know, they've done their best, as you said, they've done their best to cover it up. They've got these compliant media who just kind of don't talk about it or who throw like totally stupid, made up, you know, uh, scenarios to kind of to baffle people or to make it look as if they're seriously investigating this whole thing, which they're obviously not because they know what happened. But they do this. I saw it in The Times. I've seen it in The Telegraph. They do this thing where they'll they'll go as if like Miss Marple's on the case. You know, th th there's this whole story going of all, of all the scenarios we're looking into. And these are the pros and these are the cons. And this is what we're thinking. This is our thinking at this moment. That's utter rubbish. It's just Hollywoodized kind of stories, isn't it? Um, but essentially, the, the way I see it is, you know, the, the USA got nervous or a certain section of the ruling class in the USA got nervous that Germany was looking for a way out of the war, uh, was going to start promoting peace, was going to try to independently get back its relationship with Russia. And they basically said, no, you're not going to do that. The other thing that I think that is interesting is um, <clears throat> what we learn about the U.S. empire as far as um, its relationship with its, we'll use this term loosely, allies. That imperialism has no allies. Imperialism has no friends. That when it comes down to it, it's like really brutish, raw power and coercion. This is what I want and you are my friend. And if you will give me what I want, then great, we can shake hands. And if you won't, I will go get a club and hit you over the head as hard as I can. It's the whole knuckle dragging thing that imperialism, there's no kind of real technical aspect of it when it comes down to it. It's not like we're trying, we've got a plan and we're trying to work the plan and we have um, ways we do things. Ultimately, it is as basic as can be. You do what I say. And if not, I use violence, coercion or whatever. And that doesn't just apply. Now, what Europe should know is it doesn't just apply to the so-called third world developing powers, whatever you want to call the victims of imperialism, that within the empire itself, that 
there's no, per, as they say, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. Do you think the people in Europe are getting that message or are they still kind of drifting along thinking that the U.S. is somehow on their side, an ally to protect them or help them or whatever the case may be? Really good question. Uh, I don't think any longer there is one sentiment amongst the British or European peoples. I think there are different strands. Um, there is a small but growing section of the home populations who are very cynical, extremely cynical, cynical to the point of refusing to read mainstream media and looking for answers elsewhere, um, and very suspicious um, and hostile towards the USA and its intentions. Uh, there's a, another section which is suspicious, cynical about politics and, and news in general, and just kind of, you know, because it's cynical, because it doesn't trust politicians, because it doesn't trust media, tends to just tune out of everything uh, and hope for better days. They're going to be disappointed about that particular one in the short term. Um, there's a bunch of people who just don't, like completely don't engage with anything and just like nothing to do with me. And, you know, there's a, there's a section of the population, and it's always the better off section, the ones who still are doing all right out of the status quo, who lap up the imperialist media, who still read The Guardian and think it's left wing and, you know, on the side of justice and equality, you know, or who read The Times and think that it's good, independent, honest journalism, or who follow the BBC and think that it's genuinely trying to, you know, educate, entertain and inform, right? Um, so there is this section, but that section is shrinking. The section of the people who are actively looking for different answers is growing. And the section of people who are what I would call actively cynical, who deliberately stay away from the news because they think that all politicians and media lie, who don't vote, who don't, you know, they're not apathetic, they're angry, but they're not angry enough to be actively looking. So you've got all these different strands, I would say, but the, tr the, the trend, the direction of travel is that those who accept the media uh, and its narratives and, and political motivations are shrinking. Those who are cynical and actively looking for answers elsewhere is growing. Um, and that's the same, I think, all over the Western world. I'm sure you'll find the same trends in your country. Uh, and it's the same, I think, all over Europe. Um, I just wanted to come back on what you were saying there about, about Monopoly. You know, you basically paraphrased there. It was a famous British, I think it was a prime minister, actually, Lord Palmerston in the Victorian era, who said uh, Britain, he talked about Britain, but, you know, we, we broaden it to say imperialism has no permanent friends, only permanent interests, right? And that's exactly right. And more than that, you know, what you're describing, what we're looking at is a situation where the world is dominated by monopoly capital. What does that mean? Capital, capital accumulates, capital gathers, capital grows bigger. And every capitalist dream is to be able to crush his rivals. So even while they have common class interests, they have competing individual interests. And it's always the case that the bigger fish will look to survive at the expense of the smaller fish. Now, when we have a situation like we have today, which is a world global economic crisis, it's a crisis of capitalism that has gone global because the system is global, right? 
And because it's global, it's inescapable. Because in the old days, one of the ways to escape your crisis nationally was to expand your markets outside your borders. If the whole world market is glutted, where are you going to expand to? You can only expand at the expense of somebody else. Hence the fact that the drive to war is built into the imperialist system. Because once the whole world is divided into spheres of influence and markets you control, if you need to expand your market share, it's going to be at someone's expense. They're not necessarily going to sit and take that. Right? So what, whatever means it is, whether it's, you know, um, invading a, a, a small, small country, i.e. weaker country that um, tries to remain independent and won't let you loot it in the way that you would like to to maximize your profits, like we've seen, you know, with so many wars in the Middle East, with so many coups in Latin America and Africa, etc. Uh, whether it's that type of war or whether it's a war against a, a rival power who could be another imperialist or just or just a country that's big enough to stand up to you like Russia and China are. Um, these are about wanting to expand and control more of the world's resources and markets right at a time of deep crisis and yes you know because the crisis is so deep and because the the contradictions of that crisis and the and the and the um the way it's expressing itself are are exacerbating and deepening sort of every day um there is this very fierce competition there's a fierce debate inside every ruling class about what should be the best strategy and depending on your position in the ruling class you've got a different idea about that right which things will benefit you and which things won't so there's a fierce debate within ruling classes and then on a global scale there's this you know debate amongst so-called allies you know who find now that the crisis is really deep that the weaker allies are expected to pay a heavier price than the strongest ally but the bind that they're in is because they don't have their own independent army if the financiers of germany of italy of britain want to retain any place at the table it's got to be on the back of their service with america right it doesn't make them colonies but they are dependent because the whole world system of imperialism is not what it was you know and we now basically have one um very strong imperialist power and a bunch of others which which serve ha have kind of adjunct roles you know they're needed by the usa and part of what they're needed for actually i mean britain has a particularly nasty role i think in the world it does a lot of spying and underhand things and like whenever there's a terrorist action undertaken by ukrainian regime that they want to you know, put, put at arm's length and say nothing to do with us. The stories come out later that there was British agents involved in helping to coordinate and run it, right? And Scott Ritter has done a lovely a film, I don't know if you've seen it, called Agent Zelensky, basically saying that the people who handle Zelensky are in MI6, right, in London. So that's very interesting to see that particular specialism, if you like, that, the, that Britain has retained for underhand, dirty dealings. Um, but they're all playing these kind of subservient adjunct roles. For the USA, the main function of all these allies, whether they're imperialist allies or proxy regimes around the world, is to present an image of itself to the world and to its people as being part of an international community. You know, they have their words and their policies spoken by people in all these forums. They're under pressure to do that. They're under manners. They've been given their instructions. It's the USA that's talking. 
but they do it through the mouths of, you know, what's his name, Gabriel Boric, is it, recently in the CELAC summit, uh, was saying, I mean, what, what on earth has it got to do with the Latin American summit? But he's there saying, oh, you know, the war in Ukraine, you know, threatens all of us and we must, we must all be worried about Russia and stand with Ukraine. And, you know, I mean, that is that line comes straight from, you know, the White House and the Pentagon, right? But, or from Wall Street. But there he is delivering it. And we see the same all over the world. They have these mouthpieces and they, and they present as if, you know, it's like they like to put, sorry, I'm rambling around a bit, but look at the way they like to put someone from a small European country as the leader of NATO, someone from a third world country as the front person for the United Nations. They're all in the service of the USA, all of these people. But they, the PR of it, the spin that they're making, it helps them to sell the system, that it's international and not dominated by one or another. But, you know, you've pinpointed it. Uh, and essentially, you know, when Lenin described the imperialist system, he said, imperialism seeks domination, not democracy. You know, and that's exactly it. The big fish will always crush the little ones and will, when it's a crisis and everyone's struggling to survive, of course, the bigger you are, the stronger you are economically and militarily, the more you're going to use that to, to ensure your survival at the expense of others. You know, what do you think about, <clears throat> I've got a couple of things I want to get get into, but <clears throat> what do you think about this phenomenon? And I'm sure you see it. And these are people that call so-called lefties, so-called socialists, right? This is the, and, and, and language is important. When I talk to Africans, people who have been the victims of, and I'm saying specifically Africans, because I know some African people and some people that I probably wouldn't want to use their name because people would know who they are. Um, and when they talk about the Ukraine conflict, they talk about imperialism. They talk about it as it is. And they will literally say, this is what they all say, Russia is at war with imperialism. Just like that. When I talk to these so-called lefties and socialists here, they'll start off with the caveat, well, and they use the imperial language. I'm not in favor of Putin's aggression and invasion. So they'll start off with the imperialist stuff, Putin's aggression, Putin's invasion, aggressive, illegal war, blah, blah, blah. But, and then they'll go on to say the things that they really need, in, in many instances, things that are true and the things that they really need to say. But they'll start by using the language of the empire. Whereas when I talk to the Africans, they're like, Putin's at war with imperialism. Russia's at war with imperialism. They're more direct. What are your thoughts about that particular phenomenon? And I don't see that in the global South. I don't see that, my friends from Latin America. I don't see that with my friends from Africa. They're straight up, this is imperialism, blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's one fundamental difference when it comes to understanding imperialism, a, a gut difference, which is when you've grown up in an oppressed country, you're much harder to bullshit about what imperialism is, right? Just put it straight out because you've seen it, you've lived it, you know it. The, the real difficulty um, for progressive people, well-meaning, sincere, who've grown up in, uh, in an imperialist country is, no matter how much poverty and injustice they've seen, they in general do not have a clue about what imperialism really is and what it really does. To them, it's a thing they read in a book. Very hard to have that core understanding of the enemy. 
when you grow up surrounded by it and when you've gone to school and been inoculated and been surrounded 24 7 by imperialist media whose narratives your life experience has hardly contradicted you know the imperialist media narratives are contradicted by the life experience of people who live in the oppressed countries but for us they're not they appear and it's like everybody knows and somehow or other until you imbibe these prejudices that we're just more civilized we just know better somehow or other oh britain has the sixth largest economy in the world no one asks themselves why <laughs> on what basis you know oh it's just a thing right because probably because we're better <laughs> you know they, they don't know what where those numbers come from or what they mean and and it takes a lot to find out and we don't have a communist movement that's educating people unfortunately you know my party tries to do it we're very, very small. I think the conditions for our growth are developing quite fast. But, you know, we are and have been a very marginal force in Britain. So we don't have a connection and ability to, to educate the masses in the way the masses need educating. The masses need communist paper sellers on every corner, right? So they know where to go for factual information or for, for class conscious counter information to what they're getting from the media. Because they're not presented with it, even though now there's a sense that you're being lied to, there's not really a sense of what to do about that, where to go and how to find real information. Um, you know, you talked about the way that Western socialist leaderships talk about imperialism or don't talk about imperialism. And really what you're pinpointing, it's an age old phenomenon in, fact, in our movement. It goes right back to the beginning of the 20th century. Lenin pinpointed it. Again, very clearly, you know, at this point in time, I have to say, I recommend to everybody to read the volumes of Lenin when he was writing during the period of the First World War. Because that was when the split in the socialist movement became open and the roots of it became really clear. The economic route that a section of the working class in the imperialist countries, including their leaderships, are bought off by imperialist money by bribes of all kinds, you know, open and, and under the, you know, not necessarily even um, that, they, that they know they've been bought off, but the, the fact is that they are, they get comfortable positions, they become professionalized. Their, their status actually ends up being a status that's within the status quo. You know, they become kind of respected figures as official opposition. You know, they, they let go of their, and they also become, convinced you know that the system in which they live is too strong to be beaten and the best you can do is just be a kind of permanent oppositionist be an officially respected person within the system who occasionally says that things aren't quite right and should be nicer and you know pops up in little columns here or there but who doesn't really any longer believe that the working class's goal is to organize itself to get rid of this system and institute a planned economy, a socialist economy, take society forwards to its new level of development, right? That is let go of for pragmatic small concerns. But essentially, it's a reflection of the bribery of imperialism. And Lenin pinpointed this, you know, that the way imperialism works, it exports the most brutal, violent rule to the colonies. But with those super profits it gets from looting abroad, it is able to bribe the workers at home to buy social peace, to give them enough wherewithal to feel that they have a stake in the system 
to give them an education that tells them that they're just better. I mean, one of the things we're taught in Britain is we're not a revolutionary people. Oh, British people don't do it. Like it's in your genes that you do or don't do revolutions. You know, when the fact is that throughout history, each social system has been replaced through revolutionary upheavals. And we in Britain had a very bloody revolution in the English Civil War. It's just so long ago, and it's not taught in the way that explains that to people, right? That was our transition from feudalism to capitalism, right? That's what that was. That was our capitalist revolution, as led by Oliver Cromwell, right? And 10% of the English population died. It wasn't a small thing. It was, and it went on for, you know, there was... It was the initial period of it, but actually it, it, it reverberated for quite a long time. And the and this skirmishes in that war and in that process of handover of power didn't finish for kind of more than 100 years. So, you know, the idea that all oh, British people don't fight, don't do revolutions, oh, we're, you know, yes, what is true is capitalism is well ensconced in this country. We had our capitalist revolution early. We were the, the first and biggest imperialist power. That's created a huge amount of baggage psychologically for our people you know they've been bribed for a long time and they've been taught to feel superior for a long time uh i think i answered that question tell me no. tell me if i didn't no you're doing fantastic i'm sitting here uh really enjoying uh enjoying discussing this these things with you uh, you know and i do agree with you because um a few years back i had the opportunity to travel to south america and um, talk to people who were involved in, you know, the, you know, uh, uh, what they consider a Bolivar, you know, Bolivarian kind of uh, socialism um, with their, and, and here's what I, to me, when I, when I, you know, I hear all of these things about, you know, their, the system, how bad and bad, whether it's bad or good. And what I saw was something pretty simple. The people in the South American countries wanted their government to, um, nationalize their natural resources, lithium, what gold, copper, whatever it is, for the government to sell those things and for the government to use the profits from those things to build houses for the poor, to feed the people for social safety net. That didn't seem really complicated to me. And the discussion that, oh, well, there's no democracy, but in, in uh, Venezuela and different places I went to, there was much more democracy. They had rewritten their constitution and they had grassroots groups that were going around the country. They had one area where the indigenous people were and the indigenous people had an opportunity to basically write part of the constitution for their, uh, that basically addressed their specific needs that were different from the, you know, they're way out in the Amazon. You got to take a plane three hours to get out to where they are. Their lives are different. Everything's different. They needed a different actual part of the constitution to apply directly to them. So when I got there, I saw that everything I'd been told about the Bolivarian Socialist Republic was, was, was untrue. But again, as you said, I also saw the level of suffering and I realized, my gosh, my country, I mean, until you go to a country that is being oppressed by the imperialist powers and see it with your own eyes and see the struggle that the people are going through, you can't really understand it. So I understand what you're saying. If I think everyone should travel to a Venezuela or one of these African countries and you get there and you see the streets empty. Because people don't, because the gas stations are closed. You see the airport. There's no planes landing there. You see, oh, because of the uh, uh, the U.S. sanctions, it's it's an eye-opening experience. Your thought on all of that? 
Definitely. I mean, the first thing to point out is um, that democracy is always presented by the capitalists as if it's a neutral term. But like so many things, it isn't. It has a class content. So the first thing you have to ask when someone says democracy is democracy for whom? In a capitalist society, we have democracy for the capitalist class and dictatorship over the rest of the population. This is not generally understood, but in fact, if you look at the mechanisms and the machineries of how everything works, that's exactly what we have. Okay, we're told that we have democracy that's for everyone because we're allowed to vote. But do our votes make a difference to anything in our lives? Well, why is it that so many people have decided to get, have given up on voting? Because they see it doesn't make a difference. You can't make any headway in the British Parliament unless you're under the control of the British bourgeoisie. Right? And therefore, the changing of the guard makes no difference whatsoever to the lives of the people. If the ruling class has decided there's going to be a national health service, there will be one. When the ruling class has decided that the working class have been pacified for long enough and we're paying too much and they're going to they're going to dismantle it. Every party in power will play its role. It's assigned role in dismantling the welfare state while, or, or the NHS while telling you that they love the NHS and they're, and they're looking after it, you know. And we've been watching that process happen in our country for decades now. And the Labour Party has been as enthusiastic about doing it as the Conservatives. So it's not surprising. And just as the Labour Party are as enthusiastic about waging these aggressive wars abroad, you know, under the direction of the financiers and monopolists, as the Tories are. So, you know, the idea that we have democracy because we're allowed to vote, although the outcomes are so controlled, you know, it's it's farcical and majority of working class people are starting to understand that they, they're, they're, they're turning away from the polls and away from the mainstream parties precisely because they see it makes no odds. And these guys are all corrupt and they're all basically under orders from the ruling class. They don't respond to the needs of the people. Then you look at something, democracy of the socialist kind, it's something completely different. Um, democracy of the socialist kind, as you said, comes from the bottom up. Um, not that that means there's no centralization, but that working class deputies, the whole point of a socialist democracy is that it really reflects the needs and aspirations of the people. And therefore, um, you, you uh, elect people who you think will represent you, not who, who kind of do a beauty pageant for the media, but who are known to you. You elect people who you know, who you think will do a good job of representing you. You don't give them too many special privileges because as soon as there's privileges attached, you get careerism. You have people who want to have that job because they'll get status and they'll get privileges. And immediately you're attracting the wrong people, right? The whole point of socialist democracy is you don't give special privileges. Actually, it's hard work to do that job. And the, and the workers elect people who they think are gonna do a good job for them. And the other principle of socialist democracy, which you see, you know, in different countries adhere to this better or worse, is the principle of recall. If someone's not serving you properly, you can bring them back again. Right? They're not just guaranteed that once they've done the election, oh, well, you're in place now for five years, do what you want. Right? Um, I mean, Karl Marx summed that up really well, that, you know, in the in the bourgeois democracy, the workers are allowed to choose once every five years who which who's going to misrepresent them in Parliament, you know, and that is it. right? 
that is what bourgeois bourgeois democracy as far as the workers are concerned is now of course for the for the ruling class they have democracy why because not only they have an influence over the outcome they control the media they can have a debate about what they think the policies should be where's our input into that debate we get to receive the information right we're not part of the dialogue our concerns are not reflected we're told they are you know by the people in charge this is what you think people we're reflecting what you think you know they tell us what we think but they don't ask us what we think something completely different um you are right uh about seeing understanding experiencing the the suffering i think one of the one of the roots of our party's very firm anti-imperialism has been the fact that it was founded by someone like my father who grew up in India. And even growing up in a relatively better off family, his family was a landed family, but still they were peasants, you know, and he was surrounded by, you know, people in a third world country, you know, the poor. And India, you know, has a particularly numerous class of the poor, right? And very egregious inequalities that are very much in your face and very many problems that still haven't been overcome since India's independence, precisely because they didn't get a socialist revolution and they didn't get socialist democracy. And, you know, if you want to look at the difference of that would have made, look at China. Because in 1947, when India became independent, China was still struggling for its uh, revolution. And China's development, the condition of the Chinese masses was far behind India's, far behind. The condition of their women, the, the level of their industry, the level of their agriculture, everything. And the country was in ruins because of so many decades of, of war and of the most brutal exploitation of the, of the poor. Uh, and, you know, a very, very backward, uneducated, impoverished peasantry was the mass of the population. India was far ahead of China in 1947. But look today. China's wiped out. So many of these problems, you know, the, you know, at first they had to wipe out banditry and drug addiction and liberate the women. Then they had to put their agriculture and their industry. Uh, well, they had to develop some industry and put it onto a modern and technical footing. They, they, you know, they've done all of these things. Look at India. India is still struggling with the basic problems of education, electrification, oppression of women, you know, and huge inequality. Farmer, they call it farmer suicides, right? The, 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 the ruin of the poor peasantry basically is still ongoing process in India uh, because they didn't have a socialist revolution. So, you know, when you grow up seeing those relationships and seeing how um, the, the real poverty there is so hard to address in situations of imperialist exploitation and the damage that's been done to a country, you know, of course, India was also recovering from having been looted for 200 years or more. You know, the reality, there's a wonderful book by Rajini Palm Dutt called India Today, which I would recommend everybody to read if you want to see in granular detail the mechanism by which the British Empire looted India. And it's, a, it's like a brilliant case study of how you do that, you know, and right down to, you know, not only they had like, you know, poor peasants had about 30 odd layers of landlords, you know, kind of outsourced landlords above them to whom they were paying tribute. But the way that they they changed 
the mechanism for for taxation, which used to be, you know, the old feudal rulers had done it by taking a proportion of the harvest. So if the harvest is bad, the tax is lower, right? It's obvious really, isn't it? But the British turned it into money. You owe us this amount every year, no matter what. So of course, when the harvests are bad, they end up in debt and gradually built up this problem where they were people were having to get mortgages and then, and then, and then be ruined. But also there was even in that process, the British ended up sucking out of India, this huge amount of gold that had just was basically came from the dowries of ordinary peasant girls. When they got married, they'd have a few gold bangles. It was their security for life, right? They come with them and they keep them in a box. And then if you need them, they're there, right? But of course, in times of distress, you end up selling them. And this is like, this was a part of, of the loot that the British were kind of industrially extracting you know, every bit of wealth they could, they raped that country, you know, and, and built huge fortunes off of it. You know, the nabob, the British person who goes to India for 20 years and comes back with an immense fortune that he has made, right? It shows you something about the machinery of looting that country that went on. And I think when you've grown up with the legacy of that, um, you have an understanding of the system, which is you know, much it's, it's much harder. You, you can't bullshit somebody who understands those things in their core, you know, in the way that people who haven't grown up with that can be bullshitted with all kinds of, you know, say the right words that sort of sound convincing. You, you've been doing some work on the uh, situation on the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, one thing I find that, it, you know, in the U.S. empire, people are completely bamboozled. They have no understanding whatsoever. And they this is they get the usual boogeyman treatment. Oh, the leader of country X is a madman. He's insane. He's, a, he's completely crazy to me. I compare that to, I don't know if you've ever seen us, the guy named Raul Peck, I believe, um, Exterminate the Brutes, wherein that was a movie. He's a, a Haitian who made this documentary. It's about how during the uh, former colonialist times, which are different from the present colonial times, how I don't know, but that's what I'm told. But <clears throat> that basically the people in a, in a given country they want to take their stuff they want to rob the country so they'd say they're savages they're brutes they're inhuman and that's the excuse that's used to pillage and loot a given country today um russia is run by a madman um uh, nor uh excuse me north korea is run by an insane madman everyone in the given country that is targeted for theft is a madman and if you could talk about a bit about the the korean peninsula what people need to know about what's going on there the anti-imperialist work that you're doing there and um because i'll say this that's an area where a lot of people throughout europe and 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 um and North America know nothing about what do we need to know about what's going on in the Korean Peninsula and North Korea? I guess the first thing to understand is that the Korean people were cheated of their victory at the end of World War Two. Oh. I'm hearing you. You're loud and clear. Okay, sorry, that was All's a bit good. Weird. <laughs> uh, so the Korean people. Um, had been occupied by Japanese imperialism from 1910. They fought a very long and hard liberation struggle against Japanese occupation, which they won. So in 1945, they had beaten their colonialists. They were on the winning side of World War II, people. 
There's number one headline. Korea was on the winning side of World War II. And then there was an agreement made uh, that to kind of stabilize, it was happening all over East Asia to stabilize the situation. The, the um, Soviets would come into the North and the, and the um, US would come into the South uh, to help make sure that the Japanese were kind of got rid of and Korea would be free to chart its own future. The Soviets lived up to their part of that bargain. They um, made no interference whatsoever in local affairs and they left on schedule. The US imperialists basically refused to leave. They created a puppet proxy regime in the South, a huge mean machinery of anti-communist repression um, because the national liberation struggle in Korea had been led by a brilliant revolutionary called Kim Il-sung. And so the likelihood, the likelihood was that the sovereign united Korea that was emerging in 1945 was going to be a socialist country. Um, it was certainly going to be aligned with the new China because its leaders, its, while they had been in exile, they had spent time in China. They had helped fight in the Chinese revolution. Um, and there was a very strong uh, blood brother relationship between the Rev Mao's revolutionaries in China and Kim Il-sung's revolutionaries in North Korea. And of course, they had very strong friendly links with the USSR. Now, if you, uh, number two thing everybody should do is just look at the map. <laughs> look at where Korea is, Look at, you know, if you see the world the way the imperialists see it, like it's your chessboard and like you need your pieces in these places to control this, this and this, then you understand the significance of the Korean peninsula as far as the imperialists are concerned and their absolute fear of having an unbroken line of, of a socialist camp that included all of Korea, Korea jutting out on a peninsula between China on the one side and the Soviet Union as it was then on the other, and today is Russia. So keeping their base on the southern part of Korea was extremely important to imperialist interest to be able to threaten the Soviet Union, to be able to threaten emerging new people's China, and to be able to keep control over that whole area, including, you know, it's next to Japan also, right? Uh, and, you know, the whole of the South China Sea and the East, I forget what they call it, but anyway, that part of the Pacific, right? So the Americans had no intention of leaving. They set up a proxy regime. They made a colony. South Korea is not the Republic of Korea. It is not an independent state. It's like, um, it's like Ukraine, only it's been going on for nearly 80 years. It's a proxy puppet, very often fascistic. Sometimes it looks a bit more democratic than other times, depending on what the needs of the USA and the pressure from its own population, you know, require. But essentially, whether it looks more democratic or more fascistic at the moment, its government is always under orders and control of the USA. Its army is completely subordinated to the US army. The biggest bases of the US military outside of the USA are in South Korea. South Korea's capital, Pyongyang, is built pr practically on a base. You know, they have the, the South Korean War Museum is a converted US military base where they celebrate the, the glories of the what they call the alliance, right, which is basically their domination, their subjugation by US imperialism. Underneath, 
that converted base, which is now a glorification of US imperialist domination of Korea, there are still toxic materials that the USA was using during the Korean War and never disposed of. They just buried them underneath that base and left, their, they're still there in the middle of Pyongyang. So this is the way, and in fact, the, the South Korean people are taxed and forced to pay a fortune to maintain the machinery of US colonial occupation in their country. Right. So um, these are kind of basic things we should understand. When North Korea is presented as isolated, that is a projection of the USA's desire, the imperialist desire to isolate and strangle the socialist North Korea, right? They are terrified of North Korea's ability to succeed. They've done everything in their power to crush it economically and to cut it off from being able to trade normally with other countries and get the resources it might need that it can't produce itself. Now, remember, the South was the, was the richest uh, part of the country, had the best farmland. The North, a big part of it is mountains. Um, not all of it, but a big part of it. So, you know, it already had disadvantages from being cut off from the rest of its country, um, trying to make a go of an independent e economy in half of its territory, half of which is quite mountainous. Nevertheless, using a planned economy, despite everything that's been held at them, they have been able to develop their economy. Something else people should understand, um, when the USA launched its war of aggression against the North, against the socialist DPRK, three years, they bombed that place into the ground. They're, the US generals bragged that it wouldn't rise again for a thousand years. They were wrong. It rose again very quickly. Have a look at some pictures of modern Pyongyang. Have a look at some pictures of modern North Korean farms and scientific facilities. You know, the fact that they've been able to develop a scientific and educational infrastructure on the back of which they can produce the most high-tech weaponry in the world. So you can't produce weapons without a whole load of other infrastructure. It's not like there's weapons plus starving people. That isn't possible in a self-contained economy to have like a, a high-tech weapons program and a bunch of people who, who have nothing. You need a whole establishment of education, of scientific research and, and endeavor. You need a whole load of other types of industry that can support your weapons manufacturer at a high end. So they're not only making weapons, they're making all kinds of things, right? And they're developing all kinds of science and that relies on having a strong educational system. So what they also have is things like free housing, right? You know, what they don't have is unemployment, uh, inequality, poverty. There's no beggars on the streets in North Korea, right? We're not told any of these things. When they say the leader's mad, what they mean is the leader won't do as he's told. That's it. That's the that's the only thing you need to decode, right? That's what they mean. You know, the North Koreans are very happy with their leadership because it has kept their socialism, which has delivered so many advantages to them, alive despite everything that's been thrown at them. Have they been forced to be more insular than they would like? Yes, they have, but that wasn't their choice. It's not because they are insular. It's interesting um, that you mentioned, you know, that their cities, that their 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 situation is improving as far as their cities. I see pictures of um, uh, China. These beautiful structures. The industry is incredible. The um, <clears throat> the cultural 
um, things that they do. You know, they don't just build uh, uh, bland buildings and things. They actually have beauty and art incorporated into their culture and their society they're building. Meanwhile, the jewels of the empire, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, etc. The jewels of an empire, the cities of the empire are falling apart. They look, I mean, to go right now to Los Angeles or San Francisco, you see, you go to the corner and there are $130,000 Tesla plaids, you know, at the corners. And there's homeless people everywhere um, wandering aimlessly on the streets. You go to uh, Los Angeles, under every bridge, you know, abutment, there's homeless people everywhere. And <clears throat> We had, and, and, there, and this is what you'll hear from people. Well, those are the cities that are run by Democrats. Guess what? You go to Mississippi, you go to Louisiana, you go to the states that are run by Republicans and you see intense third world poverty. So it doesn't matter who they're run by. This poverty is there. So when I look at, it, uh, when I look at the, the jewels of the empire falling apart. To me, that's representative of the empire. And what's interesting is the leaders of the empire don't seem to mind. They just don't even pay attention to what San Francisco, New York, Philadelphia, et cetera, are turning into impoverished open air drug markets. Instead, they just blame the people. Well, those homeless people, if only they worked harder, if only they did this or that, there's never a blame to the empire. Your thoughts on the decay of the physical decay of the empire and, and what we can learn from that. We are seeing a decay. What we're seeing a decay of is the post-World War II Keynesian consensus, the social bribe, which was a pale reflection of the gains of the socialist countries. Actually, what we're seeing is a return to normal workings of capitalism and imperialism. Huge inequality was always the norm, even within the heart of the richest imperialist countries. Even Britain, when it was at its peak of being the world's biggest imperialist power, where a good section of its working class had a hefty bribe and a nice conditions of living. There were little children living their lives in the gutter without education or food or you know shoes. Um, interestingly, and you talked about dehumanizing earlier, and it's exactly why our rulers don't care, because increasingly they express what for a little while they had to hide but which has always been their attitude. And you see it in the way people like Winston Churchill and the eugenicists spoke about the workers they sent to the trenches in World War I. They didn't consider them human beings. You know, They had the utmost contempt and therefore they didn't care how many lives of them they expended in the trenches as long as they got the outcome they wanted. Exactly the same mentality we see at play uh, in Ukraine right now. And it's the same mentality you hear from their lips when they talk about their own workers. They have no respect for them or value for them as human beings. They blame them for their problem. They, they have a supremacist ideology that says, and of course, if you think about it, the logic of their system as a human being, you kind of need that, right? If you're at the top of a supremely unequal system and you benefit by making sure everyone else stays at the bottom, because that's how it works, right? You're rich because everyone else is poor, right? So if that's the setup and you're at the top, you sort of have to believe that there's something natural and right about that, don't you? So it's not surprising they have a supremacist ideology, but of course, in order to dehumanize others, you also dehumanize yourself. The whole way of thinking is profoundly dehumanized. 
um, but they have no value for the life um, or the sufferings of the poor. They have a whole load of, of things they tell themselves about how these people are just born, born useless uh, and live in a useless way and just don't know how to do better and are incapable anyway. Like you could give them an education, but they'd still be useless. You know, they just have this a totally dismissive mentality, which they, you know, their educational and their and their and their social bubble trains them into these ways of, of thinking and behaving. And of course, it makes it easier for them to treat the world's population and the world's uh, territory like it's their chessboard with their pawns on it that they can just dispose of at will, you know. Um, but if we're getting back to a situation of kind of tooth and claw, if you like, capitalism, where the gloves are off and you see clearly what the relations are and you see clearly the effects of inequality, even in the home, rich imperialist heartlands, there's many, you know, you've pinpointed homelessness and that very blatant inequality of, of rich cheek by jowl with poor. Uh, that was something that we saw was very synonymous with Victorian London and Victorian cities in Britain. We're also seeing a rise in Victorian diseases. You know, we a lot of the world, I know Americans will think that, you know, Britain's doing better than them because we still have the NHS. But of course, the NHS is being dismantled and our health system is not working properly. And our whole social system is being dismantled and not working properly. So we are again having a rise of extreme poverty and the diseases that go with extreme poverty. You know, I think it's 11,000 people in England, not the whole of the UK or the whole of Britain, 11,000 people in England alone were admitted to hospital last year with malnutrition. Okay, it's a relatively small number, but compared to zero, it's huge. And as a trajectory that indicates where we're going and as a symptom of the, of the rising uh, problem of really deep poverty amongst workers in Britain, it's really, really telling statistic, isn't it? You know, um, I have uh, <clears throat> haven't been in England. Uh, you know, I was last time I was in Britain was before um, COVID, and uh, you know, I have a lot of friends. I talk to a lot of people, and I hear that things are not looking very positive economically for 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 uh, England right now. How do how? But yet, the ruling elite, the agents of the U.S. are traveling. Uh, they're just going along as though there's no problems whatsoever. They're 100 percent on board. Yes, let's go after Russia. Oh, China's over there. Let's go after them. They are oblivious to the suffering of the British people, completely oblivious to it. And they're just let's put the foot on the gas of imperialism. Oh, there's another country over there. They're just acting as though everything's fine. Who cares about home? Our job is to act as the um, the edge, uh, as you know, the knife's edge, the blade's edge of imperialism for the U.S. warmongers and to go around and do what we need to do. So they're like thrilled. When I look at Rishi Sunak, Joe Biden gets there and he reminds me of if you've ever had a dog when you haven't been when you've been gone for a long time and you open the door and the dog sees you, he goes crazy. He's wiggling. Not just his tail is wiggling. His whole body is wiggling. He's jumping up. He's putting his paws. He's panting. You have to pet him and pick him up. And he's oh, he's so happy. That's what Rishi Sunak looks like every time Joe Biden comes to town. And Joe Biden just kind of looks at him and goes eh, and he walks over and looks for some. I, I, let me be blunt. It looks for some white guy to shake his hand and just goes, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, get out of here. It's um the idea that Sunak just accepts this degradation and humiliation and that the ruling elite just 
accept that and push it anyway. You know where what I'm getting at. Your thoughts on that particular dynamic, Jody? <laughs> I just love your image of Sunak as the rejected puppy. Um, well, Rishi Sunak is one thing. You know, I mean, he is the the chief, you know, kind of official representative of British imperialism, and therefore his prestige, you know, matters. But on the other hand, he's a servant. He's a highly paid flunky for the British financiers. Um, he's a well-connected one, as those servants go. But, you know, he's a flunky and they can take it. Um, and he can take it. He'll, he'll, you know, he'll take it. He'll, he'll get his rewards in various places. Um, but yes, I mean, there's a part of him, clearly as an individual, he, he's a little bit overexcited by being in the same place as the US president, isn't he? Despite the fact that the guy who's, rep, you know, Joe Biden is also a flunky, right? But he's a flunky who's A, very arrogant uh, because he knows that he's the flunky of the, of the boss. And you're a, he shows the way his country thinks about Britain. And Sunak's personality aside, what's interesting is this, it is a slightly one-sided love affair between Britain and America because the USA can see that Britain is a fading and, and fast-fading power in terms of its uh power in the world uh, and its ability to be mean um, something meaningful outside of hanging on the US coattails. Whereas Britain, as the fading imperial power, Britain who used to rule the world, you rule the waves, right? rule Britannia, they still sing it at the bloody proms every year, you know. Um, they, the British ruling elite is profoundly supremacist about itself. And it it's very hard for the, the top British financiers and aristocrats who are kind of all merged together to accept or believe that the USA doesn't really need them, that they've got special skills and a special understanding of how to run imperialism that nobody else has. They're needed, their expertise is needed, their special efforts are needed. Um, and of course, also, that you know, when it comes to just purely financial interests, British finance capital does need its relationship with the USA, right? Because they no longer have their, uh, the kind of army that can represent what they need it to on the world stage. So they really need the USA to feel that they're important so that they, they retain their place at the table. Um, but also they're just, they, they've been, the, they were the bosses for so long. Their deep-seated sense of superiority, they, they still look down on the Americans, actually. You know, and it's, it's deep in our culture. We all do it, you know, oh, bloody Yanks, you know. Oh, they've got no history, they've got no culture, they don't really know anything, they're so brash, they're so this, they're so that. They don't have our subtlety, they don't have our intelligence. You know, we're brought up with those prejudices and they're really the prejudices of our ruling elites towards, you know, the, the, the ruling elites of America who they still consider to be kind of Johnny-come-latelys and they, you know, they can't quite, after 100 years, they still haven't got their heads around the fact that, the Americans are the bosses now, and they're the they're the sidekicks. If, if I may, <clears throat> I put it like this: It is my observation that the British ruling elite feels as though we're the brains and they're the brawn. That we come in and we say what needs to be said, and we think this thing through. And if you don't do what we tell you, we got this big evil, ugly goof 
over here and he'll come in and punch your lights out that that's kind of the way they see it but when i look at what's going on with the current um conflict and other things it seems to me that they're over anxious to prove their loyalty maybe that's the wrong way to put it since every time something happens hey some missiles hit or a bridge was attacked and it's as you said, plausible deniability for the U.S. empire because MI6 was the ones that was in the middle of it. They're overly zealous to prove their, maybe I put it another way, their importance to the empire, to prove, look, you guys are out there doing terrible, you want terrible things done. You want all kinds of things done. You couldn't do it without us. So it's like they're trying to prove how necessary they are for U.S. imperialism to work. And I tend to think they look at the attack on the Nord Stream with the thought that that could be us. So we have to really prove to the U.S. empire how important we are. And then they'll never do those kind of things to us because we've proven that we are an integral part of the empire and the empire couldn't work without us. And they don't get it that the empire is sociopathic in nature and that they are only they are there to be used and disposed in the same way that any other country. would. Anyway, your thoughts. I mean, as humans, we always find it difficult to understand, even when we're right at the top of the pyramid of this system, the fact that human logic and uh, capitalist logic are not reconcilable on any level. Um, but yeah, I think you're right that um, the British establishment is working very hard to prove to the USA that it needs it, that it has a special place, special skills that nobody else has, special understanding of how to keep control over difficult populations and difficult situations of how to run subversive ops of how to spy of how to you know do all kinds of things that other people aren't as good at as us and we will show you that we have a special edge and you need us and therefore you can't just discard us and our interests the way you look like you might be going to discard the you know France or Germany and their interests right that we won't put us under the bus um i think it's a it's a vain hope but i think you're right that there is a, a definite trend of that. There's also the fact that, you know, British imperialism, you know, British finance capital is still a major thing in the world, right? There's a huge amount of finance capital that's based out of Britain. And that has its own weight and its own logic. And it's obviously, you know, it's the finance capitalists who dictate to our government. And they talk to the, they are very closely connected to the finance capital of USA but they're not exactly the same. And they do want to make sure that they have a continuing ability to make profit in the world, right? That's the whole goal of finance capital is to put your money somewhere and it comes back as more money. <laughs> and to, to be able to keep doing that is super important. Obviously that's the whole logic. So maintaining, you know, they've understood we have to, we have to, do stay with the USA and moreover we need these wars to work because if the US goes down we're going down too so they are cheerleading for the wars almost more than the Americans are because they are they are they feel more existentially threatened by the failure of these wars I think and you can really see that by the way that in the British political and media establishment there is no anti-war voice there is no dissenting voice. There is no one who will say, 
you know all this stuff about Putin being a madman and Russia being our enemy that we have to destroy, and maybe that's not true. You know, even the so-called communists and the stop the war movement, stop the war in Britain, stop the war, in quotes, our controlled anti-war opposition, their first demand, demand for the war is not directed at their own ruling class. Their first demand in order of priority is this, Russian troops out. So their first demand is imperialist demand, right? That's how they want to stop the war. That's how they're mobilizing the British working class against this war. Russia invaded Ukraine. They have accepted and they regurgitate this narrative and their headline demand, the first thing. After that, they say some stuff about NATO. But let's face it, they made their priority clear. And that was it. And the same Communist Party of Britain, which is not, I'm the CPGML, but the official Communist Party in Britain, Communist Party of Britain, they call it Putin's war. They talk about peace endlessly and they talk about NATO, but they call it Putin's war. They also say Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, as soon as you do that, you know, regurgitate imperialist propaganda, essentially you are reinforcing the narrative, the NATO narrative of their justification for what they're doing. And we don't have a meaningful force in Britain that is prepared to stand up against that narrative. So that shows you how strongly it's being enforced. Well, um, Jody, um, I certainly want to thank you. We've been on a little bit an hour, uh, we, oh, oh, better than an hour, but I've learned a lot, and I really appreciate. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah, one one last thing I did want to ask because I have a lot of questions, but you know I can't take up all your day. Emmanuel Macron will come out occasionally, and I know he speaks for the ruling class, and he'll start saying, well, we need a European army. We need European independence. He never says France needs to be an independent and sovereign nation. He says we need European independence and a European army. I get the feeling that the Europeans are simply saying there appears that there's a new world order forming. And in that new world order, there will be various poles and there will be some imperialist poles. And U.S. imperialism isn't working for us very well right now. We want our own imperialist army so now we can go around the world and do what they do. What does the, who does the European, who do the Europeans need an army to protect themselves? They know they don't need to protect themselves from Russia or China. They already know that. It would be only force projection, power projection. So it seems to me that the, and I hear people who are ostensibly on the left saying Macron is saying the right thing. He wants to, he wants to break away from U.S. imperialism. I'm not saying no, he just wants a different brand of imperialism. He wants an independent imperialism so they can continue to loot West Africa or where, whatever the case may be. Your thoughts on, you know, this is the last question I'll give you. The, the, things that Macron are saying and the propensity of people on the left to try to align with that and look at that as some kind of a hope that Macron, Macron of all bankers wants to somehow break away from imperialism. Well, I think you've pinpointed quite a lot of, of, of the essence of what's going on there, Garland. You know, essentially, we're looking at debate, dissension within the ruling classes of the European countries and, made, and particularly Italy, Germany, and France, who were the major pillars of the European Union, uh, the major imperialists of Europe, aside from Britain. And there is this ongoing debate 
about whether the benefit is worth the cost of staying under the shadow of the USA or whether there's a way for them to go it alone. I actually think the moment for them to have gone it alone has probably passed, but it will be interesting to see how this debate keeps going around. The more that Europe suffers, as it is suffering the blowback of its own hardcore sanctions regime against Russia that has hurt Europe far more than it hurt Russia. In fact, it's ultimately ending in strengthening Russia and it's going to strengthen China too, because it's forcing them into independence, which it can only be a good thing for those countries. Um, but the more those sanctions rebound on them, the more pain they're feeling, the longer that goes on for, the more dissension there's going to be, and the more times you'll hear these ideas popping up. But whether they're in a position to really meaningfully act on that is another question. Um, but the fact that these come around shows you the division and the, and the, and the, and the frustration and the, and the desperation and the, and the dissension in the camps of the ruling class, which could, you know, is only a good thing. It helps us when the ruling class is fighting itself. There's opportunities for the working class. Number one, we learn things because when they're fighting amongst themselves, they have their fight out in public. And it's in the media. Different factions of the media represent different factions of the ruling class. And when they're fighting with one another over substantial things, they let things slip that in ordinary times they wouldn't. So we find out. They start accusing. They say, I remember when you did this. I remember when you did this. And the workers watching go, oh, that's interesting. Right? Lots of truths come out when the ruling class is fighting itself. The question is, what use do we make of this information? We have to learn something you know, about how the system works. The fact that people are so desperate for a little bit of dissension that they will see, you know, Europe trying to be an independent imperialist power as some sign of progress uh, is fascinating all by itself, isn't it? But essentially what the kind of people who see that and, and respond that way are the kind of people who, you know, were really upset about Brexit. They're the people who identify with European imperialism and don't really like European imperialism being second fiddle to US imperialism, would like it to have more muscle in the world. Uh, I think you're right. And the other thing, um, I've, I know I've said this before, but this is the last. Um, <clears throat> I think that the um, imperialists, that the ruling elite are very skillful at seeing what's coming and at taking the wheel and driving um, people who want change into the direction that they want. So I think they can see this. People are angry. The a lot of their uh, political institutions are crashing, and they want to set the table so that when people finally have had enough in Europe and they say we want revolutionary change, we want change. That what they can then say is this: "You're right. So do we." And our revolutionary change is going to be breaking away from U.S. imperialism. So they will give them the illusion of a revolutionary change, breaking away, pulling back from U.S. imperialism. But in that in and of itself is not a revolutionary change. If you still have European imperialism, you just you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it in house. So I think part of this is the setup so that people can say as soon as they see some um, of their leaders saying, I'm not going to go along with everything, still some, but not everything that we're told to do by the U.S. empire, they, that people in Europe will interpret that as a revolutionary change. And they'll get that illusion that there's change and that'll buy them some more time, maybe another five or 10 years that the people say, ha ha, we pulled away from the imperialists. And then 10 years later, they'll look around and say, wow, life hasn't gotten any better for me. So what do you think about that idea that they're, cre they're creating 
the appearance, the illusion of change so that when people ask for change, they can say they're doing it and give them something else. I think they do make these plans. Um, we were having this discussion in one of my a study group that I attend recently about whether the Republican movement in Britain is being massaged a little bit that way. That, you know, when people get really angry, you know, maybe they'll throw the royal family at them and they'll try to harness a lot of anger and, and desire for change around, you know, suddenly there'll be a big media campaign about how corrupt and useless the royal family are and everything would be better if we were a republic and we get rid of them and actually actually everything is the same because they their role is just as, as front people for the bourgeois state. We don't live in a feudal monarchy. They don't have meaningful power. They are servants of the bourgeoisie in Britain. But, you know, they could be something you could throw to the lions, as it were. Now, I can see how those type of plans and fallbacks and plan Bs can be concocted and thought about. But, you know, it's something that all these planners and all these people who obsess over the plans of the ruling class never take into consideration is the masses. Um, the, the, the Scottish poet Robert Burns said, the best laid plans of mice and men he said it in Scottish, but I'll say in English, often go awry, right? Gang after glay, he said. You can make your plan. But does that mean your plan's going to work out? Your plan relies on the people being just sheep, sheeple, as they like to say, who will just go in the direction you heard them. But look at all the plans that imperialists have been laying over the last 40 years and how well they've all gone. Look at their plan for Iraq. Look at their plan for Afghanistan, their plan for Syria, their plan for Libya. Which one of those, and look at their plan for Russia, which one of those plans worked out the way they set it out on their draft board, you know, before they started? Not one of them. Why? Because they're not in control of the masses or of the enemy, the way they think they are in their minds. Well, you know, the masses might not comply with this attempt to divert their attention either. And you know, I'm a communist, right? As far as I'm concerned, my job is to be part of making sure that the masses don't bloody well comply. Wow, uh, a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time out to come on. And uh, so what do people, where do people need to go to find out more about your anti-imperialist work, to find out what you're doing, how can people follow you, etc.? Thank you. Uh, so uh, I'm on, if you wanna follow me, I'm on Telegram. Um, just search for Jyoti Bra, you'll find my channel there. That's where I tend to do social media. Um, uh, if you want to read more from the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, uh, we have a website. I put the URL up down here, wapnews.org. Uh, we also um, have a Telegram channel, WAP, uh, Platform News, I think it's called. I would definitely uh, suggest people follow that. I would ask you to follow my party's Telegram channel, The Communists, or our Twitter. Um, so we are the Communists of Britain, CPGBML, and uh, Proletarian TV is our YouTube channel, which where you can also see, you know, a lot of the work that we do. Um, we have, you know, daily we're putting out um, useful analysis with a class-conscious perspective, an anti-imperialist perspective. So at WAP News and at the Communists, if you follow those two uh, websites or Telegram channels, you will really get a different view on the world than the one you're getting from a lot of the rest of the media. Well, thank you very much. Certainly appreciate it. Of course, everyone, all of my stuff is across the bottom. Follow me on Telegram. If you want to contribute to the channel, that's all available there. Make sure you go to rockfin.com forward slash Carla Nixon in the event that uh, YouTube throws me off. <laughs> 
one of these days, which is possible, you'll have a uh, another option um, to find me immediately because it is um, it is uh, it is uncensored platform. Jody Brar, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Fantastic as always, and I hope that uh, you'll come back to my humble channel at some point. Definitely. All right, I'll talk to you soon. And for now, anyway, I don't know how much longer I have a show in LA. I need to talk to you about getting you on my Los Angeles radio show. Oh, sure. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Jody Brar, follow her everywhere. She's fantastic. The work that she's doing, the people that you're working with, they're pushing back against the system. We're out. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.